Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Dispatches. We are very, very fortunate today to be sitting with someone that I'm going to describe as a pioneer, a mentor, an editor, a consultant, a board member, an advisory council member, a founder, someone who went from the art department to the journalism department, and a very, very, very accomplished photographer in Sarah Lean. Sarah, how are you today? I'm great. Happy to be here. Yes, I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Um, we got a chance to hang out last year, but I didn't get a chance to do the interview, so it's been haunting me for, for a year. <laughs> and anytime I do an interview like this, I always do uh, a little research and obviously, you know, a little background check, you know, uh, government background check. And I was thinking like if I had to make a, a bullet point list of, of your life, it would be a list that's made out of granite because each one of the bullet points in your life is so fantastic that we could spend an hour talking about mm, each one. You. But we're going to start with a little speed round, okay. a, a little warm up just to have fun. Uh, and there's about six, six or seven questions here that are short answers, but just um, out of curiosity. True or false? There are fewer full-time editors photo editors working today than 10 years ago? False. False. Wow. That's a surprise to me. <laughs> I, and you know what? And I'm very, very, very happy to hear that. Uh, if you had to pick 28 millimeter or 35 millimeter? 28. Really? Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm 0 for 2. I'm 0 for 2. Okay. Uh, Kodak or Fuji if you had to pick? Mm, hard. Hard. I'm that, gonna say that's a tough one for me, and I've worked Kodak. Wow, At, back wow. in the day, back in the yeah. day, yeah, 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 was a long time ago. So I worked for Kodak for a long for four years, so I have a little allegiance there. But Fuji yeah. makes great stuff, so yeah. there's no wrong answer right. on that one. Fuji is where I ended up. Okay, Kodak is where I started. All right, I think so. that's that makes sense. Favorite cold weather country? Iceland. Iceland, good one. Favorite warm weather country? I don't think I have a favorite warm oh, weather country. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, hmm, Australia? Ooh, that's a good one, too. That's, that's on, high on my list as well. Mm -hmm. um, most challenging yet rewarding place to photograph? Siberia. Ooh, good one. That sound, that e just the name Siberia uh, seems like it comes with uh, some challenges. Uh, has the proliferation of imagery made an editor's life easier or more difficult? More challenging. More yes. challenging. More challenging. Okay. And uh, in the age of the great deluge, which I stole from Doug Brinkley, who wrote the book about Katrina, is, is curation of imagery really the key for maintaining the highest level of impact? I think so, yes. Okay. True. True. That was our uh, speed round. And now we're going to go way back in time because uh, your history in photography is pretty fantastic. And I'm, we're going to start in 1979. You won the College Photographer of the Year, and you were the first female uh, participant to win, win College Photographer of the Year. And you went to University of Missouri? Yes, School of Journalism. So when I was coming up, and it went, I went to UT Austin School of Journalism, and College Photographer of the Year was a huge deal. So you won that. And, and logistically, how did that contest even even work was it was it a one-day assignment where you competed or was it over time it was a, a portfolio entry 
So you would enter a portfolio. So it, it was uh, several, a few stories and some single images. Um, it's judged at the University of Missouri, and that's who sponsors the contest. And uh, yeah, and then there's a panel of judges that go through all the portfolios and vote. And I got extremely lucky. <laughs> uh, I don't know how much luck played into it, but uh, yeah, that's and and through that winning College Photographer of the Year, you were awarded an intern internship at the Mothership at National Geographic. That's right. Yeah, that was uh, always a dream of mine. Uh, Bob Gilka, who was the director of photography at the time, he used to come to the um, Pictures of the Year judging, so I kind of got to know him through that and just admired him so much. So I always thought, oh, I'd love to have that internship. So you could apply by portfolio for it, or okay. you could win the contest. And you just you just cut right through it and just won the contest. I know. Amazing. And, and why Gilka, for those of you out there who don't know, Robert Gilka or Bob Gilka was in the editing uh, arena was considered an absolute legend. I never met him. I've never been around mm -hmm. um, him at all and seen how he worked as an editor. But what made him the editor he was? Why was he so magical? Well, he was the director of photography. So he wasn't um, actually doing the hands-on editing. He had a team of people, a staff. But he was the kind of man that uh, took chances on people. He... Um, had a sort of a tough love approach, so he didn't mince words when he was critiquing your, what you had done. <laughs> uh, I was on the end of that a few times. Um, but he was also like the kind of guy that everybody who worked for him, you would just do anything to please him. It was like if you could get a, you know, get praise from Bob, you know, it was like, that's it. You 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 can die now. You, you can did, go you home. So, yes, he was just uh, that kind of leader. He was an amazing leader. He defended photography and photographers at the magazine. And, um, and I was, uh, the only time I worked for him was as an intern. Okay. But by the time I went back to the geographic, uh, there was a different director of photography. And so... We stayed friends his whole life. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And um, so you get, you, you get this uh, internship, and then that becomes your first assignment for Nat Geo. For the magazine, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, which is Uganda. 1980, yeah. Uganda, and it's, the story is called Return to Uganda. How did the origin of that story, was it something that you chose, they chose... Yeah, I had done a few, as an intern, a few short assignments for uh, this series of books they did called Special Pubs. You know, went to New England, and that was probably my biggest assignment before the magazine. But um, there was a, a couple, um, Jerry and Sarah Cambides, and they, she was from Uganda, and they proposed going back. She had been away during Idi Amin's rule, and so she was going back to see her family. So they um, funded it and asked me to go along with them. And so it was a three-month assignment living in Uganda and Kampala uh, with this family, with the Jerry and Sarah and their young son, John. And we lived together in an apartment in Kampala and went all around. And, and it was really... Uh, it was... It was really hard for me because, um, mostly because uh, I had kind of come up shooting black and white in school and I had done a little bit of color, you okay. know, yeah. in the university. Um, but this was all color transparency film. And back then, um, and then this is really showing how ancient <laughs> I am, there were no light meters in the cameras. 
you had a handheld light meter. Oh yeah. And and transparency film is very unforgiving. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, the latitude the range is really narrow, so you got to get it get right in there to have it. And I was really struggling. I struggled with that. So that was probably one of my big things. And the other was just, you know, I didn't have much experience. I, you know, I hadn't been to Africa before. I you know, wandering around trying to take pictures um, and do a story. So I learned a heck of a lot. Quickly. <laughs> working on that story. And so what, when you got on the plane to go there, was it, it was an official assignment yeah. for Geo. And what was that like getting on the plane saying, I mean, you have this mountain behind you now, yeah. this institution. Was it terrifying or was it motivating? Oh, totally motivating. Okay. You know, and I spent a lot of time pre- preparing and talking to other photographers and getting hints. And, 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 they, and they found me a Nikon had just come out with the FM and it had a light meter in it. Oh. And they got me that camera. So that helped a lot. I still have my Luna Pro, you know, oh, handheld. Ghost, ghost and Luna yes. Pro. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, uh, and that helped a lot. But it was still, I, yeah, I was super excited, really privileged, um, felt very privileged. And, and, yeah, and there were two photographers in Kenya when I got there. So we started in Kenya and then we drove into Uganda. Okay. And uh, so... There was, you know, right away at the border, you know, they wanted me to pay a huge amount of money to bring my gear into Kenya. And I'm like, I'm in transit. I'm only going to be here a couple of days. I stayed at the airport like all day (laughs) with my heels dug in, not paying it, you know. And finally, they let me go. And I found out from the two other photographers that they paid it. Oh, <laughs> so I felt pretty good about that. That's good. Showing <laughs> showing some fortitude right off the bat. Um, and so you come back from this assignment. Just hearing that someone went on a three month assignment for me, which I think the longest assignment I ever got was three days. Um, that is uh, absolutely fantastic. Number one, you come back from that, and then what's the time duration between um, coming back to where it sees life in the magazine? Um. So back back then, there was probably about a six or seven month lead time. Okay. So I would I came back in I think it was maybe November. Um, so my internship was extended because of the length of this assignment because I don't think we went until like August. So so I came back maybe uh, like in October and then we edited it and we laid it out, um, and then it was months before it showed up in the magazine. Okay. But the other the other thing that's challenging about that assignment on most of my assignments for the geographic uh you know it's you don't see any pictures until you get home right it's and people don't realize you know now the luxury of just looking on the back of your camera and seeing what you got well you know i would i was shipping film i would go into nairobi to ship film uh back to the states you know and then i'd get a call and they'd tell me about it right and but i never got to see anything for the whole trip (laughs) No, which is like right now, it's like, I can't even imagine it myself. No, it's inconceivable now <laughs> to have to do that. Um, uh, my photojournalist friends talk about going to the airports yeah. with a bag of film. Begging and, someone to take it. Yeah, and saying, yeah. hey, will you take this to New York? Somebody will meet you when you get off the plane. Yeah. And thinking yeah. about that now, like you even get near anyone at the airport, oh. they'd be like, uh, security? Exactly. Very, so very different times. You come back. The story runs. That must have been an amazing feeling to see it in print after oh, after all of that. Absolutely. And I was, uh, you know, planning to. I hadn't finished my master's degree in journalism, and I was planning on going back. But Bob was kind of like, "You don't need any more school. You need to start working." Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, 
okay, you know, so, uh, and he got me a job at the Topeka Capital Journal oh, in nice. Kansas. So he made a few calls. To, well, you know what? I mean, that's connections. Uh, connections are a good thing. <laughs> what, but also, too, you, pr- you proved it. I mean, you had already mm-hmm. won college photographer. That's not accidental. You've obviously had to create an entire portfolio. He, had trust in, he sees you at the internship, realizes he can trust you, sends you to Africa for three months. I mean, that's a pretty huge commitment. So, and clearly the light meter and the FM paid off because <laughs> the stuff you, you get in the magazine. So I get it. I think, um, and I think especially it, it, the same thing is happening today. When you have connections, you, you prove yourself and people are going to, people are going to do solid things for you. But it's interesting because you go most of the time. It seems like the the pattern would be in reverse. You would be the newspaper photographer for a while, then you'd start freelancing, and then you try to get into the geographic. So you were actually kind of backwards. Absolutely, yes. But the intriguing part to me is you do the geographic thing. It's a successful story, and then you land in Topeka. And tell us a little bit about why, because you go Topeka, Columbia, Missouri, to Philly Inquirer, mm-hmm. which is quite a jump up the up the food chain in the newspaper world why is that such good training ground um because the the main thing about working for a newspaper is you're you do everything you do news you do portraiture you do still life the food photos you do some fashion you uh you do journalism you do storytelling you just you do everything so you have to so in each Many of these different things take like a bit of a different skill set. Mm-hmm. So you're just adding to your kil- toolkit all, all the time. And you're photographing a lot, like every day. You know, you're photographing and often on the weekends too. You know, like if, especially if I was working on some kind of a story, I would use my own time to, sure. to keep going on the story. Sometimes I would just enterprise a story and then pitch it to the newspaper. So you just, you know... It's all that practice, all those everyday, those challenges with the different sort of genres of photography, you know, learning how to light. I learned how to light at newspapers because I did a lot of uh, studio work, Mm -hmm. especially in Philadelphia. Um, So I think that it's, you you can't beat it in terms of like constant everyday working hard and, and on a lot of variety. What was it like going from a three-month deadline to a multiple daily deadline? The daily deadline to me is a fascinating thing in, buried inside that culture, but what was it like to do that? Well, I had done, um, you know, the, at the University of Missouri, there was a, a newspaper, a student, a, a full-on newspaper that mm-hmm. competed with the local newspaper, and it was all run by students, and everybody, you know, we all like had to do copying class through that and and I worked as a photographer for that newspaper. So I had some experience with the daily deadlines, right? But so it wasn't so much um, that, that that was a challenge. It was just some of the types of assignments, you know, that were, I, I was assigned to the Kansas legislature for three months. That was my very first gig at the paper was, and they had two, two editions, morning and evening back then. Wow. And I had to go f- make a picture for the morning and in the afternoon. And, you know, if anybody spent any time in any legislature or Capitol Hill, you know, it's men in suits, yeah. like talking, <laughs> you know, and it's like really challenging. And I and and that was like a really great experience for me. I did it two years in a row because I actually li- come to really like it. And let's also remind people that at this time, shooting a morning legislature assignment, you had to then go back and soup film. Yeah. And was it automatic soup film or was it soup by hand film 
It was um, at Soup by Hand. It was like a big tray, like a big box. Yeah, and you yeah, put yeah. all your reels in there and, and do it. And then make the prints and, then and write prints. the caption and then turn it in and then go back to the legislature. That's what I wanted people to realize <laughs> like is that this was insane. a very slow, laborious <laughs> process. That was, uh, that was yeah. looking back on it, awesome, but at the same time, incredibly laborious for even yeah. the most basic and then, yeah, yeah, you'd start early and had to work really late because I also had to um, furnish photos for the AP. So the AP would ask me to put stuff on and transmit, which was like this really <laughs> antique whirling <laughs> wheel. And if, if it got interrupted somehow, you have to start all over. Start over again. Was, and that was putting a wet print on the tube yeah, and then spun yeah, it. Yeah. So yeah. I don't have time to go into all the details of this machinery. Ancient but, technology. <laughs> but it is, it's hilarious if you ever, I forget the name of that transmitter, but you put a mm-hmm. wet print on a tube and the tube would spin at high speed in one line at a time. It would transmit these images, which uh, just makes me happy even talking about this stuff. <laughs> so from Topeka, you go to Columbia uh, and then you end up at Philly and all of these papers for those of you out there who um, aren't familiar with newspapers at the time, they were all known as papers that treated photography really well. Mm-hmm. So picture usage was a huge part of the paper. And Philly was, in it, it, I'm not sure where it is today, but Philly was one of the best papers in the country for photojournalism. Yeah, it was great paper. So you're, you go from Topeka to Columbia to Philly, and that's over a period of about six, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Because in 88, you start freelancing for yeah. Nat Geo. Yeah, I start. I I was doing a lot of um, that last year. I was there. I knew I really. I I just want to get back to the geographic in the worst way. So I um, was pitching ideas to them, pitching stories, and I was also I was freelancing for some other people too on the weekends and stuff, or I might take a day off. And so I did some work for People Magazine and travel and leisure, and did some. Uh, but you know, the geographic was my goal, and so I. Um, I pitched uh, ideas to them, and one idea, because uh, I had been sent over to South Africa by the paper, uh, by the Inquirer, Philadelphia, so I had a couple of foreign assignments for them, and I, I, I really wanted to continue that work, um, but they, they accepted the idea, but I ended up not doing it, and they gave me, so they gave me an assignment, and uh, I just, then I quit. You quit, quit the paper job. immediately? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know, because I, because, and, and I was just going to freelance and I didn't know, you know, is, is this one story and then I one and done at the geographic or what? So I, I kept freelancing for some other magazines, but once you start working for the geographic, your assignments take so much time yeah. that you, uh, sometimes it's hard to service other clients very well. I can imagine. I mean, it's to me it was the holy grail. Even even if you're an amateur photographer and, you, and people say, "Oh, you're a photographer," do you work? The first question is, "Do you work for Geographic?" You know, it's the holy grail for for most people. So, you did 16 stories over your career, and you had five covers. I'm sure getting the cover is the the feather on top. You know, the the cherry on top. That's a pretty monumental achievement. Um, I have a whole bunch of questions here about sort of logistical okay. Nat Geo things, which is, um, what's the biggest misconception that people have about being on assignment for Nat Geo? Well, I, th- I think maybe, you know, most people think it's like a great travel trip. 
you know, that it's like, oh, you're going to go to, you know, Paris and get to be in Paris, like as if you were on holiday, you know. And I think that uh, that's like, that's the biggest because it's just work. I mean, that's why they call it work, because it's a lot of work. Yeah. And you don't, you know, you don't get to have dinner at a reasonable hour. You don't even get to have lunch. I mean, lunch you can pretty much count on if it's a sunny day, you know. And you're getting up before the sun is up. And you're staying late, out late. You know, you're working the ends of the light. And, uh, you know, you, you're a terrible house guest if you happen to stay with anybody while you're working. Because when are you going to be back? I don't know. You know, don't, don't hold dinner for me. You know, so uh, I, think it's, I think that's probably one of the big misconceptions is, you know, that it's kind of a, like a wonderful like a holiday. holiday. You said, something, work. you said something interesting. Lunch is almost a guarantee if it's a sunny day. I know what that means, but explain yeah. that. Well, in terms of, you know, photographing with available light, unless uh, that high noon is, is tough, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like you can't make a picture. And sometimes maybe that's the point of the picture is that harsh light, right? Or you can, you know, use a little fill flash too, you know, yeah. if you want to. So, but it's a, it's a great time generally depending on the type of story, you know, when I would take my shower and I could do some laundry and I could make a million phone calls and set up stuff, you know, and uh, eat lunch, you know. So, yeah, it's kind of the, it's working the ends of the light mostly. That's a great way of describing that, working the ends of the light. I've never heard anyone say it quite like that, and I Mm -hmm. think that's the perfect description. Impromptu question. Rank these in order of importance. (laughs) Light, timing, composition. All my friends right now are rolling their eyes oh. because this is something I, ha- I those three things are like the, my only ingredients that matter. Light, timing, composition. I might say, oh gosh, it's really, they're all so slightly different in terms of importance. But yeah, I think even low light, I think light, you know, we're light capturers, mm-hmm. you know, as photographers. So I think the light uh, is is really the voice of the photograph. Um, I think mm, I'm, t- I'm torn between timing and composition. Uh, I, I, maybe for, for me, composition is really important. Uh, maybe it's a, that might be number two. But timing is the moment. I know. And we capture, we're, we're trying to capture moments, unless you're doing it like a still life or something yeah. like that. So it's hard between the two of them. But composition for me, I think, is really what sort of separates the artist. You know, that's when you move into being an artist and not just a, a gatherer of facts that's... in a way. You know, I mean, for me, that the, always, and what I say to students I work with and for myself, it's like it's that intersection of art and journalism, which is the sweet spot. I believe, and that's what to strive for. Yeah, because it's you know just documenting exactly what you see. That's like information, mm-hmm. and it's important. We, we're communicators. You want to communicate, but can you make it? Can you just do you want to hang it on your wall? Does anyone else want to hang it on their wall? You know, I think that's really important. And composition for me is so much a part of that. Uh, composition for me is like your fingerprint. It's you, your composition yeah. is unique to you. Yes, but it can also. It took me 10 years to figure out what mine was. And the only reason I figured, found it out was I quit working as a photographer. I took a job for Kodak. And Kodak said, you have to sign a non-competition clause, meaning you can't do assignments anymore. So I sold all my equipment. And I kept a Leica and two lenses and a, and a bag of Tri-X. And for four years, I just shot my own projects. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I said, 
oh, now I know actually who I am. So how long do you think it took you to find who you were with the camera? I think, um, I'm trying to remember when I did my Siberia stories. So I had two years, uh, for two, two one year and then not a, then the like two different years I spent doing two different stories in in Siberia and they're still like my favorite stories and and the, when I look at those pictures I think that's my voice right that's oh, okay. that's where I finally put all the work and everything together and started making pictures that I still love to this day you know and so I think and that would have been 91 and 93, I think. So a few years, yeah, for sure, a few a years. Few years. Um, you know, I had all that newspaper experience. So, But a few years at the magazine, mm. be, you know, before I took those, did those assignments. Average assignment duration, and this is where my heart is going gonna, is gonna to break. What, what would be the average, you know, for a Nat Geo assignment? Well... When I was uh, working as a photographer, it was really the golden age at the Geographic. They had, you know, 11 million something subscribers, right? And budgets were big. I mean, I don't, we didn't even make a budget, <laughs> which is kind of unheard of <laughs> now, right? But, uh, and those two Siberia assignments, um, I spent like a total of about four months. Okay. So each trip was about 10 or 10 weeks. So maybe 21, 22 weeks between the, you know, for one of them, you know, so, uh, which doesn't really happen. Anymore. That's, that's the, yeah. that's yeah. that. So now I think, um, it's not I mean, there's, there's some s stories that still get a lot of time, mm -hmm. uh, especially natural history, underwater, those kind of stories they need. They're like so complicated and, uh, very technical mm -hmm. and, um, so they they take more time. So you could still, you know, I mean, you can still get an eight-week assignment there, even for a more cultural photojournalism-based story. But it's, I think, eight, eight to ten weeks for the whole thing. So maybe two trips, a couple of months. Okay. Um, but there's a lot, lot, lot more shorter ones, especially online. The digital assignments oh, yeah. are maybe a week or a couple of weeks or something. I mean, there's an exception to every rule. I mean, there's something, often something will start digitally and then go into the magazine, and definitely vice versa. It's in the magazine, and then it's then online. Then goes digi. Yeah. Um, I would be okay with eight weeks. Yeah. I'm just volunteering that now, <laughs> Eight just weeks is good, isn't it? Plus, you have, you know, you have that moment in between if you're making more than one trip, you know, you have that review process. Well, that's my, that's my next question, which is I've heard all kinds of stories about this, but... Um, yes, please illuminate us on the fact that at, G at Geo there was what I would call a midterm report. Yeah, but ha the halfway does, show. Halfway show. The halfway does, show, and then there's the final show. And how does this work? So the halfway show is um, of, of about halfway through the coverage. Uh, the photographer and the photo editor will put together a slideshow of where they are now. Okay. And then you present that to the executive team, um, which consists of all the top editors in all the different apart departments, and and the editor in chief, um, and then we kind of we're kind of giving a report. We're showing the work that we've done so far. We talk about what we are going to continue to do to finish it. Um, are we on budget? Um, you know, 
We hear often from the writer as well, like where they're going with the story. Mm -hmm. um, and we and it could be that uh, you're also saying, you know, we we thought we were this is what was the most important thing about the story, but now we're finding out it's really this over here. So we're going to shift a little, and you get the editor's feedback. So basically, they the editor is going to tell you whether this is working. You know, yeah. and if you can continue, and if you know your budget is good, or they, the editor might just say, I don't, I, "You don't really need four more weeks," you know, or they might say, "Well, I like this, but I want to see more of that." Okay. So it's it's a lot of really good feedback, and it's really great for both the editor and the photographer to get that feedback, and uh, so to make the plans to finish the story. So the hierarchy would be you're in the field shooting. There's an edit, a, a specific editor assigned per story. Yes. And then over that person, you have director of photography. Yes. And, and then and the editor-in-chief. And department editor heads. And then the editor-in-chief is the final word. Okay. Yeah. And so worst case scenario would be half midterm report. They say, we're not, this isn't working for us and it's done. Yeah. Did that happen? I mean, does that yes, is that, it that's, did happen. does happen. It can oh. happen. And you know, it, and then and they might now, you know, if it, it doesn't happen very often, though. Um, it may, it could just end up, from what you've got so far, it's going to go online. Okay. And it's not going to maybe make the magazine. Make but the it's, magazine. It's, it's fairly rare. Okay. Right. Um, they might shorten up the time you have. Like you thought you were going to have another month, and they, you know, she might say, the, uh, he, the EIC, the editor-in-chief, might say, well, I, I think you only need two more weeks to get this thing done or something, which is so, it's hard. It's, that's it's so that's mean. hard. It's, it's real, just mean. It's hard, but, you know, um, <laughs> but so much work has gone into this story in advance to, you know, get to get this whole thing done, and I think that's, like, so important, that, that prep, the okay. prep for our story. Which leads me, you're, like, transitioning into my next question <laughs> um, so effortlessly, and this is in all caps for everyone listening to this interview because... Everyone is probably sick of hearing me talk about research prior to doing uh, projects. And one thing I find is that, I don't know, the further we get into the internet age, the less people seem to be willing to do research. And I think if you're going to do a project like that, you've got to know not only what's been done before, but you've got to have a foundation of research. How much research is done prior to a Nat Geo assignment? A lot. Um, and especially as the world kind of changed and the assignments got shorter and budgets got smaller, you had to really know out of the gate, like where we're going, what we're going for, you know, and, and who's going to help you when you get there. So, um, and that's, it's, we spent a lot, I mean, the photo editor does a ton of research for the photographer. And then okay. the photographer, certain photographers are really good about researching too. So you, the two of you, and some are le less interested in doing all that research, but it, it has to be done. And it also helps you understand what this really is about. What's the story about? Because, you know, the, it's been, the story's been proposed by, could be staff, it could be a freelance writer, it could be a photographer. I mean, anybody can propose stories. The photo editors can propose stories. So, you know, there's been a certain amount of research up to that point. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, you've got a ground truth at all, and you need to have that visual research, you know, which is very different than... Um, the sort of the more the textual research, the facts and the story. So like where to go and what does that look like and is it worth going there and you know and how important is that to some aspect of the story? So you do a lot of research and a lot of outlining and uh, conversation about it at, before you set up the trips, you know, to go and where you're going to go. 
I've never heard anyone describe it that way either of, of the sort of gritty factual research, but then the visual side of the research. Yeah, and important. what you're doing is you're in essence stacking the deck in your favor by saying, yeah. I, have, I have a more limited time, I have less budget, I need to stack the deck in my favor and put myself in an environment where it's visually rich, where I have a better chance of making images. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. Important. Um, the other thing I've heard from about Nat Geo folks is that once you're on the ground in a particular country, you would also have access to someone like a fixer or a translator, mm -hmm. and that's part of it as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and these people are sort of the unsung heroes of every story. The, the Your translator, um, your sort of local managers who um, help you find things. I mean, you're on the phone with them a lot before you get there, you know, to, to set and sometimes they'll set up access. They can, they can, you know, if there's permits or something, you need special access, or they'll talk to people to get the access. And you know, often you want to go, but weird times that when you know the the tourists aren't there or something like that, depending on what the story is, or just access to a school or to a hospital or, or all of that. And they're essential. And um, then they're translators, and they also often become your translator. And a good translator is, you know, is like your, they're your voice. So you can speak, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 especially with the Russia stories, I was there long enough that the first one at Lake Baikal that I just did myself a crash course in Russian, you know, and was started with just reading the alphabet because it's in Cyrillic, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I tried and I worked, you know, and long drives and stuff like that, I would say words over and over to my poor you know, translator driver <laughs> and say and to get my pronunciation right but you know it's like you're just doing everything you can and so they become so important and I have, there's one who I worked with in uh, Macedonia and she and I are you know we're really good friends yeah. till this day fantastic yeah. fantastic um, I just had a made a YouTube film last week a question and answer film and was talking about this and some of the early projects I did in the late 90s where without those people, I would literally have had nothing in, exactly. in the project. Exactly. So great, great to hear that. Do you remember the first time something went wrong on a Nat Geo assignment and how you solved it or got out of it? Cried. Cried a lot. Cried a lot. <laughs> There's no shame in that There's, whatsoever. I don't think there was a single Nat Geo story I ever did that I didn't have some sobbing meltdown. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Because it was all, it was just like at a certain point, you know, something goes wrong all the time. Probably every day something goes wrong. I, I can't, you know, I can't remember some of the specifics, but, you know, you get, so you're, I think one of the, and this is, I think, very important. One of the jobs, one of the things we're being hired to do is to be a problem solver. Mm -hmm. And if you're a good problem solver, you know, without calling up and whining, you know, that goes a long way to being somebody that a photo editor wants to work with. Great point. You know, because they, the people that call and whine and have a million excuses, well, that photo editor has like 10 stories, 12 stories they're working on. And if you're the person that you they get the assignment and they go out and they just do it and they deliver it and they're not calling, you know, every other week to say, oh, this didn't work, I don't know what to do, you know, you just solve it. That's your job. So I think being th that problem solver, so, you know, you cry to yourself. You, you, cry, sure. you, don't, you <laughs> don't cry at the photo editor. I sort of learned that a little bit the hard way on that internship, uh, my first internship in Uganda. I didn't know any better. And I used to call Bob. Oh, I'd call Bob Gilka with my issues. And finally, his assistant, you know, called me and said, 
Sarah. You don't call Bob. <laughs> you don't call Bob when you have a problem. You call your photo editor, you know? And I sort of learned, like, I was like, oops, yeah. you know? And then I learned, like, okay. The protocol. I, I just, I'm go- the protocol, but also, I'm just going to, I got I to gotta figure this out myself. Yeah. You know? And it's so important, but. It's a great uh, skill for the rest of your life, basically. Yeah. It, yeah. And I think that's really, really a key to being a professional is to be a problem solver. You touched on this a minute ago where you said story ideas could come in from a writer, a photographer, uh, or staff, staff anywhere. Mm-hmm. Where did your particular ideas, is there a, a source? Could, is it music? Is it literature? Is it news? Is it a combination of things where you find your stories? Um, I, when I, I, usually it was like I had kn- knew about a story. It was, some of it was like, I, you know, I love the North, right? And I love the Arctic. And it's I love, cold. you know, I like it. Well, it's a, also, it's a palette I like, you know. It's a very limited palette, color palette, and there's big horizon lines, and and I love the culture. So I was pitching, you know, when I was trying to break back in, you know, I pitched a story in Greenland, you know, uh, you know, I pitched to, uh, places I wanted to go, and I knew there was a story because I'd done, you know, done your research, mm-hmm. and just things that caught my eye. I pitched a story. These are all stories that I did not get to do, you know. Uh, I went on perfume. Oh, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I remember that I, yeah, story. I didn't do that story though. I, I, it was earlier. I pitched it years earlier, and they didn't. They didn't get it. And later on, they did a perfume. Peter story. Essex. I think maybe Peter did it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. So that. I, I think it's like following your bliss in a way. Like, what do you want to be working on, and what resonates with you, or uh, what, like maybe cultures or something. I, I. I was always interested in doing things about aging because I had older parents. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents had kids late in life. And so that was like, I think having, you know, a personal connection to something um, is a key place to look for ideas, you know, because I think more and more we have to answer the, uh, answer the question of, like, why are you the right person to do this story, you know? And if it's just because, well, you've never been to Nepal and you'd really like to go there, yeah, that's, that's not, not good enough. enough anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's that sort of parachute journalism, which is where, where I grew up with, um, was more no- normal. And we didn't think too much about how, whether we the right people to tell that story. Right. So now I think if ha- having a personal connection to something, you know, maybe you, you know, speak Spanish and you've been to Mexico 27 times working there and you've got a, a real expertise mm-hmm. on a topic that helps. Our personal connection, I think that's, that's where you look for the stories. Great, great, great points. Now we transition. You decide when you became editor, senior editor at Nat Geo, mm-hmm. was that a conscious decision to stop shooting assignments and become full-time editor? And how did that transpire? And then what happens when you have to edit a friend? Mm. Good stuff. Good questions. Um, I had been doing a lot of teaching while I was working as a photographer as well. I taught at main media workshops probably 12 years in a row. And while I was doing that, um, you know, I'm editing my students' work. And I'd always self-edited, too, as well as working with those photo editors. Every photographer is their own Mm -hmm. editor as well, uh, which is, I think, challenging for some people. But... So I was doing a lot of editing, and I really enjoyed editing the students' work. And I've just felt a certain um, strength. Like I felt like I, I didn't, I wasn't anxious about. Well, I was always anxious shooter. You know, I was always like 
you know, yeah. on the edge of like feeling like I was on the edge of failure, you know. So a lot of very stressful. But you know, I didn't feel stress editing other people's work. I felt confident and decisive, and uh, and like I could help. I could see how I was helping, you know, and the feedback I got was good about how I helped them. So it was always kind of in the back of my mind that, you know, maybe someday I'm going to want to do this more. So I, uh, there was an opening at the Geographic, which a photo editor was leaving. And I knew the, the, the guy who was the um, director of photography at the time uh, was... Oh, I'm sorry. He was the he was the director of all the photo editors. Okay. It was Chris Johnson. We had worked together oh, yeah, in yeah. in P- Topeka. We were on the same newspaper staff, oh, and I knew him through working on stories when he was a photographer. So I thought, well, if anybody's ever going to hire me as a photo editor, maybe it's the Geographic because I don't have any credentials <laughs> as a photo editor. So I applied for the job, and Chris hired me, and uh, that was it. I just put my cameras down. You wow. can't do really do both. I had a couple of things. I had a story I had to finish once I got hired that it was still on, uh, not done yet. And one time in a desperate move, they needed somebody to photograph the head, uh, uh, like a model head of a the Dakika D- 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 child, you know, that they had made in the studio and there was nobody around to do it. So I can, well, I can light, I can do it. So, but mostly, you know, I was just devoted to photo editing and working with the photographers. And in terms of working with friends, um, I, I, when I went there, I really felt like I wanted to help bring in new photographers, a lot of new photographers, and, I, and change sort of the visual voice okay. and get more visual di- variety of, types of photography mm-hmm. in, maybe more portraiture, some four by five, some, you know. So, uh, and the ones who are my colleagues or my friends, you know, I felt like they didn't really quite need me so badly, okay. right? So, but I did have some, and it was it was difficult, you know, because I had been just this other photographer, and now I was their editor. So there were some challenges in um, working with them and getting them to trust me as a photo editor, mm-hmm. you know, that first year. But I, I went on to really mostly work with uh, new photographers, photographers I brought in. You know, I bring them in in their projects and uh, talk to talk my editor, my boss that was now the editor-in-chief. Chris became editor-in-chief of the magazine. Okay. You know, and I would just show him people's work and stuff like that. So I did a lot. I did mostly that more than working with uh, my photographer colleagues. Well, and that had to be a major challenge because the geographic had a look, a certain mm, look. Mm-hmm. And you had photographers, I think, and I'm, I don't obviously didn't work there, so I don't know this, but you had like Nick Nichols, who was the Africa guy. And you had... Natural history. Mm-hmm. You had Alex Webb and those folks who had a very specific style mm-hmm, of image. Mm-hmm. And then you had like g- what I would consider generalist people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the same time, it had a specific look. And I, re- I mentioned this yesterday to you, but when I first saw Lynn Johnson's piece on Van Gogh in 6'6 mm-hmm, Black and White, mm-hmm. I was like, it took... I had to like flip the magazine over to go, wait a minute, is this geographic? Mm-hmm. So that had to be... Was, was there a lot of pushback against that, of at cha- adding new people? Well, I was actually very lucky that Chris was the editor-in-chief. And he really embraced a much broader, you know, um, menu of photographers and types of photographers. And uh, for me, the proof was in the pudding. You know, I would show the work, right? And I'd say, you know, I love, you know, say like Erica Larson, and she was doing her four or five stuff, and she was working on the Sammy project. And I showed him the work, and I said, this is so good and this this could be us this can be us this is our type of story you know so I was always looking for you know photographers that were 
it was not a it was not like oh well, all of a sudden we're gonna do fashion. No, it's our type of story. It's mm -hmm. a, but it's done visually a little different. You know, so I had several photographers working in film, uh, four by five, and then Lynn. Uh, when I worked with Lynn, I was always the, all the stories I did with her were all two and a quarter. Yeah, and because um, she's like such a star, uh, when yeah. you know in in that square f format. So. Yeah, it was, um, I think it was embraced, and then it became like normal, and other other photo editors were d doing the same, you know, bringing in other photographers, new photographers, and and new styles. and. Fantastic. I mean, I guess it just basically comes down to adapting to, to different times, and, and yeah. also an audience that's maybe the visual sophistication of the audience is changing. Absolutely. Yes, with you know with Instagram and all the imagery that's out there and everybody taking photographs and I you know the the newer the younger generations they're raised on yeah. you know liking yeah. and not liking which is editing in a way, yep. you know, uh, photography. So they're they're definitely more visually sophisticated and want to see, you know, what's new and so senior editor, just not enough. So someone decides to become the first female director of photography in National Geographic history. Well, um, that was Chris Johns, you know, <laughs> who was my uh, was the editor in chief, and um, you know, we he and I worked really well together and had been on the same page a lot while I was um, was working as a photo editor, and yeah, he offered me the job. You know, and uh, well, you, you know, you're not going to say no to that, right? Wow. So uh, that was a huge leap for me. You know, I had, uh, I was, it was kind of back to, okay, my comfort zone was being this, the photo editor, right? I was felt really good. And then I got pushed into my uncomfort zone, mm -hmm. you know, becoming the director of photography. It was a huge challenge. I'd never managed anybody or people. And that, you know, um, I was in charge of the budgets, managing a team of photo editors and the photo studio photographers and the photo engineering. Wow. All, you know, wow. and, then, and then video got added later. And uh, so there was just social media. We had our Instagram account. And um, yeah, it was a lot. That's a lot. And a I lot, was, I, I think I was, you know, I mean, I, by the time I left, I still didn't know everything I probably needed to know to do that job. <laughs> you know, I was good at bringing the, you know, uh, who's the right photographer for this story, working with the photo editors on figuring it out and the visual approach and uh, good with feedback on the work that was being produced and the, and the layouts. But, you know, the, the management part was a real challenge for me. It, it, this sound, <clears throat> maybe it sounds ridiculous, but it's kind of unfair because managing a budget and managing a, another human being mm. and then the editing side and the and assignment side that's five six jobs in yeah. one so on the yeah. on on the surface i hear wow you're a director of photography at national geographic but on the other hand i kind of look at that and go i don't know if that's the job ultimately that would that i would want yeah because it just seems so daunting yeah it it uh the best part about the job is, you know, you're the last word on the photography, right? And you set the bar. You know, you set the bar where your where your standards are and what you want, um, what you want the magazine to look like visually. Sure. So that's like that's the why you do it. 
you know, because you can have that kind of influence on it. Um, but also the photo editors, you know, they're key. I mean, they are key to this whole thing. You know, they would, if they, uh, I would be assigning them a story, you know, and then I would say, think about who you'd like to work on this. You know, bring me some names. And I, or I, sometimes I might have somebody right away that I would like, but mm -hmm. I always ask them to bring me some names and then we talk about who's right for it and could we get them and... Um, but yeah, it, the management side of it is, you know, that was the real, the hard work for me. The other part was pure joy, you know, ple what pure is it? pleasure. Uh, pleasure and pain. I was yeah, say. it's like yeah. both. <laughs> uh, so in 2019, you step away from NetGeo, mm -hmm. and you start, of all things, start editing photography books, which um, is right up my alley. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm stoked to hear that. And uh, a couple of things about this. So how does that process work of like finding books, editing books. And the second sort of secondary question is when you were working as a photographer, were you editing and laying out in your mind in the field what you were shooting or was it a blank slate until you got back? Um, I was, uh, I think more, it was not necessarily laying out, but I think you're, yes, you're totally editing. I mean, I'd keep long lists of like what I thought the important things that had to be photographed and had to be covered. And I was, you know, thinking like, I was thinking about the whole story and how these different things that I'm photographing are going to fit in to the whole story. Um, because I didn't get to see my images till I got back, I wasn't literally editing, you right, know. Right. I, mean, I did that when I got back with the photo editor. Um, but, and then layout, I wasn't really thinking too much about the layout then. I was, as a photo editor, I was really thinking about the layout, mm -hmm. you know, of the, like, what's going to be the lead, and then what, and how many pages have we got, and everything. But as a photographer, I, I didn't think about that too much. Uh, I was just gathering, you know, everything. Yeah. And that's enough. I mean, I can only imagine, you know, being on, with Nat Geo assignments, the pressures and things involved, but... Photography books are a unique thing. And so, number one, what is it about books that is so intriguing to you? Especially because I've had people write me on YouTube and say, you're an idiot. It's the digital age. Why are you talking about books? <laughs> Which I love. YouTube comments are the, or troll comments are the best thing in, in the world. So what is it about the photography book in general? And then the secondary question is, the folk, even though I know now that Gilka wasn't an editor, so let's take some of the editors that you worked with on the Nat Geo and then also the newspaper editors that you were mm. with. What residue of their influence is helping you with photography books today? Mm -hmm. and, and But the first question is, like, why, why photography why? books? Well, I don't know a single photographer that I've ever spoken to that didn't want to do a book. Mm -hmm. and, and why do we want to do books? Well, because we're artists and we make things. We like to make tangible things. You like to, we like to make a, have a print and have it on the wall. You have a book, it's an object. I always say you can fall in love with a book or a print, but I don't know too many people that fall in love with a website. Mm -hmm. That emotional, there's an emotional connection to a print on the wall or to a book that is, is just the game changer, you know? I mean, I personally look at most of my photography uh, that I'm doing on the on the web, mm -hmm. on the internet, on the social media, uh, uh, and I edit on my computer now. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't, we're not making little prints or something till like the e the, end, the end, right? Yep. Uh, but but everybody wants a book. It's like there's just something 
so special and tangible about having that. And, you know, in my office, it's full of photo full books. Of I mean, I'm a nut for them. You know, it's like, it's terrible. Some people, it's shoes. For me, it's photo books, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm, I have a terrible time holding myself back, not to buy everything I see. But, uh, and, and working on a book, so, you know, I came from editing from magazines, and now it's kind of like going from checkers to 3D chess. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it is... The, the number of variables that you can do in making a book, it's endless. Mm-hmm. It's the typefaces. It's the type of paper. It's the size. It's how many pages. Do you want to have a fold-out? Do you want to have, you know, transparent paper? You know, and all, all of those kind of design decisions affect the edit as well. Sure. You know? so, <clears throat> so for me, uh, I worked on... Um, editing a book at the Geographic my last year there. It was a a book about women and the women, images of women from the 125-year archive. Okay. Right? So, and uh, from the image collection. And so I edited that book. So I had done that book. And then uh, one of the, uh, Bill Marr, my husband and I, we teach these photo editing workshops. Mm -hmm. And we did one in Lucca, Italy. For for their photo festival, and it was good. like a long weekend one, right? And had just really some wonderful photographers. I mean, and w- one of the photographers, Antonio Facciolongo, went on to win the World Press Photo Evidence Book Award. Wow! It was chosen, uh, but the but to be made a book, like right, it's a right, project right. that's going to you get this award, and then you're going to get a book made of the the work that Fantastic. you submitted. So. Uh, and he was in my workshop. And so when it came around, he asked if I would, because I was editing that work. Sure. That became the prize winner. And then he asked me to edit his book. So Svetlana Bachevanova, she is the, runs the photo edit evidence um, uh, book publishing company. And um, so we talked to her and... You know, they had a really crackerjack, wonderful designer, Ramon Pez, who's a fantastic designer. And he, and so, you know, I started editing his work. And uh, that book, um, I, I did so many little jobs on that book. I just loved working on it. It was just, I loved the photography. So, you know, we found ways of, um, I found a poem for the book by a really amazing Palestinian uh, poet. Um, It's a story, it's called Habibi. The book is called Habibi, and it's about uh, women whose husbands are in Israeli prisons um, and how they use artificial insemination. They sneak out the sperm Wow. And artificially inseminate themselves and keep having kids, oh right? And it's this incredible wow. like story as well as these when they're all square format photography. Anyway, so we that book was like an amazing thing and then after that I just thought that's what I want. I'm just wanted to keep doing books. I want to edit books. I mean, I love teaching and I do mentoring and I do short editing things too, mm-hmm. but the main thing is um, I love doing books and Svetlana has just keeps I mean, she's my, like, you know, fairy godmother. She keeps um, asking me to do more books for them. Like you said, everybody I know that's a serious photographer wants to have a wants to have a book. Yeah, yeah. I, I also love too the permanence and the idea that potentially these books end up in libraries. Yeah. And I think back to the time when I was an intern at the Arizona Republic in Phoenix, and I didn't have any money, and I lived rented a room at another photographer's house that was close to the Phoenix Public Library, and I would go down to the library, and I found Peter Beard, for example. Yeah. I found all these people that literally changed my life in the yeah. library from photo books. Yeah. Um, 
I was at, I interned at the Arizona Daily Star in Tucson. Oh, I knew a couple of photographers <laughs> down there. I love the border. So, you know, yeah. the Arizona for me was, was a really good thing. And, and frankly, and I'm sure this was um, similar for you as well, but the other photographers helped me so much. You oh, know, absolutely. I had, no, I had a degree in photojournalism. I had no idea what I was doing. Absolutely. And then I would assist for the help other photographers at the paper and then freelance editorial guys would come through and I the photo editor at the paper would suggest me as an intern and those guys helped me mm-hmm. I remember driving down the road and, and one of them saying how are you doing your taxes and I was like what do you mean taxes what taxes yeah and I you know <laughs> all the basics so this brings us to a key point here which is mentoring mm-hmm. and teaching and you created something called the visual thinking collective mm-hmm. and give us a little background on what that is so when I was leaving the um, the geographic, I felt like uh, the what I'm going to miss the most is the community, you know, the community of the of the staff and all the editors and everything. So I thought I need to try to start making a community. So uh, I talked to my good friend Elizabeth Christ, um, who was a, also had been a photo editor at the Geographic, and she had already left, and talked talk to her about it. And so we started putting it together and added added. A, talk to other freelance photo editors or curators and it's only four of us but we um we've and we've done a few projects together and taught a little bit together and i and i right now i think we're in a bit of a transition uh period would like to add some more members to it and take on some other types of projects as a team but it's been a nice base to kind of work from you know and also you know give each we give each other a lot of support we can you know do you know a photographer here or there or you know something like that we have a lot of inf- knowledge we share so that's been really good but um i think that you know i i love teaching i th- i feel like i'm at this stage in my life where i want to be giving back i there's a little kind of phrase where it says i'm like a turtle on a fence post i didn't get up here by myself which is like my motto you know i'm I, I had the life and career that I have had because of so many people supporting me and helping me and teaching me and and giving me constructive criticism. You know, you don't, you need, you, we need each other, right, mm-hmm. yeah. to really succeed. So um, I like teaching a lot. I like, uh, I like doing some mentoring and just helping photographers, you know. Uh, I'll get calls and somebody wants me to help them with their grant proposal mm. or contest edit or all kinds of like little little ones but they're you know and I feel I, I can help them I can help you yeah you know I know that I can this is where this confidence thing this is why I'm doing what I'm doing and not taking pictures because you know uh I feel like I can help and so it gives me huge joy to um help somebody on their on their journey and speaking of teaching you have a couple of upcoming I have, uh, yeah, I'm, I t- I'm teaching at the Missouri Photo Workshop, in, uh, and that's a team teaching in in um, September, and then the Eddie Adams Workshop, which is also a team group of 10 photographers, and then we're teaching our photo editing class. It's like a project editing mm-hmm. class. You bring in a project, and we work on editing and sequencing, and uh, in for Santa Fe workshops starting in last week of October to and through the first week of November. And by the way, I was given a little sneak peek this morning into how some of the editing in that class works behind the scenes, and it's incredibly slick and sophisticated. And if any of you are out there are interested, because I know tons of people ask me about editing and sequencing, and 
how to get better, that's the class to take. It's, yeah. uh, I, would, I would take that class myself uh, yeah. if I could. It's a good class. I think it really uh, opens people's eyes and gives you like a foundation uh, to, to edit yourself. You know, so it teaches a lot of sort of, there's some nuts and boltsy parts to this. And then, you know, the fun part is the sequencing. It's always like, you know, when you start to see the magic happen, right? When you start building sequences. And so how can people, where do people find you online? Um, uh, Visualthinkingcollective.com. Um, you can go in there. All my contact information is in there. And usually in the calendar of events, like things that are upcoming that we, it's, any one of us might be doing. Um, and uh, Santa Fe, if uh, anybody's interested in that upcoming workshop, you can just Google Santa Fe and put in my name. It'll show you the, the workshop. Um, so these are the main places, visual right. thinking. Or I have a Sarah Lane photography website, but it's really old and hasn't been updated. I was working, I was looking at it thinking like, oh my God, I haven't updated my bio. It's like, I got to do at least that, right? Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So we've, uh, we've come to the end of the hour and, um, which went by incredibly fast. I feel like I could talk to you forever. And there's, there's just something, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you for I, having I, me. I know how precious time is these days and to get an hour with you is great. And what I absolutely love about you, and I was talking to your, uh, 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 talking about you with your husband this morning, which is there's no seemingly separation between you as a human and you as, as, uh, as an image, per, you know, what you're doing for your, your profession. You, d, this is in your DNA. You live it, you breathe it, and then there's a certain sty, uh, style of photographer, a certain type of person that is that way, and it's so fantastic for me to be around. I have such an appreciation for that, and I just thank you so much for, um, for taking the time. Well, you all can't see me right now, but I've got a big grin on my face. <laughs> Dan has been the most wonderful host. It's a great podcast. Um, so listen to some of his other ones, too. And thank you so very much for having me. Absolutely. And we'll uh, hopefully see you again soon. Bye. <laughs>